So, as uh, we all know very well um, now, the world is currently facing an unprecedented crisis, uh, far worse than the financial crisis of 2007, and we just don't know, do we, how everyone is going to cope with the economic and political and social and health impacts of the coronavirus outbreak. But whatever happens um, globally and whatever restrictions are placed on our normal way of life, our attitude to all of this and how um, we let it affect us emotionally and spiritually is rather dependent on what we believe about God, whether or not we truly believe in the same God that the Apostle John believed in. Our passage today um, from John chapter 6 describes, um, I think, one of the greatest miracles that Jesus did. A miracle that gives us some insight into his amazing power and his absolute supremacy. We see Jesus as the one who is in complete control and no crisis is too big for him to deal with. On the other hand, some say that this wasn't a miracle at all, um, that there's a natural explanation for um, what we're going to look at today. But those who say that believe in a different Jesus. They believe in the Jesus who is limited in the same way that we are, the Jesus um, that cannot be turned to in times of crisis. Let's read John chapter 6, beginning at verse some time after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing those who were ill. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, where should we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already knew in mind, um, already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up, Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will that go among so many? Jesus said, make the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve barley baskets, twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is come into the world. So, uh, like I said, this is, I think, one of the greatest miracles that Jesus did. It's found in all four Gospels. 
Um, there are slight differences between the four accounts um, as each writer focuses on different things. And it's always tempting to try and amalgamate them to try and come up with one complete picture of what happened. But I'm not going to do that today. Um, instead, what I'm going to do mostly is look at the miracle just through John's eyes. And that's why we're, 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 we're studying the Gospel of John. He has a particular perspective. And we're going to look at it through John's eyes, remembering that John has this overall aim in his Gospel of helping us to believe in who Jesus is, the Son of God, the one who has all power and authority. In a sense, the problem that Jesus and his disciples were facing was one of their own making. Um, the ministry of Jesus was having such an impact that huge crowds were attracted to him, they just couldn't get enough um, of it. Um, but we can see in verse 2 that um, they appear to have been mostly interested in seeing miracles. And maybe in a way that's, that's um, always true of human nature. Um, we have a natural tendency towards boredom, don't we, when things seem to be a bit dull or repetitive um, or lacking the wow factor. Uh, and we like things which are new and exciting. And you know, there is the, the, um, the, the possibility that we can bring that attitude to church life and what we expect to get from church. Um, so we need to be careful about that and um, we also need to be careful about um, being led in a direction where we start to look for God only in the miraculous and not in the simple, ordinary things of everyday life. But let's think about this problem that um, they had in a little bit more detail. Why were the huge crowds um, a matter of concern? Why was this a problem? Um, Two things really. Um, one consequence, and I will just touch on briefly um, because it's Matthew, in Matthew and Mark, and I just said I wasn't going to go there, um, but I am going to just touch on it briefly. Um, and Matthew and Mark um, bring out the point that this was having a, an impact on the, the Lord Jesus and the disciples in that they were, they were worn out, they were fatigued, it was unrelenting, and they needed some rest. They, they needed some quality time alone because, as we know a lot better now than perhaps um, generations did in the past, continuous work and the, uh, and the various types of stress that goes with all work, some of it quite subliminal, some of it quite acute, um, that um, when we have continuous work and stress, either from our working life or our church life or our family life or in relationships and other commitments it can have a negative impact on our physical and, 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 and mental health if we don't occasionally um, take time out, or I should say frequently, little and often is, is, um, is, 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 is the best approach, isn't it? And the Lord Jesus recognised that, which is why we have that often quoted verse in, um, in Mark chapter 6, verse 31, I, I call it the stress-busting verse, uh, when he said to his disciples, come with me, by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. And I think that's a valuable lesson that we can learn in that. 
Now, it doesn't seem that that actually happened. That, um, that, 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 um, that, that promise or that opportunity of rest, they didn't get it because almost immediately the crowds caught up with them. And, uh, and, and actually, John doesn't mention that particular problem at all, as I've said, because um, he's got this different focus to Matthew and Mark. For John, the problem was just a matter of supply and demand. And I'll come back to that in a moment. But let's just imagine the scene for, a, um, um, for starters. You've got thousands of people in a, in a remote place and in their, their desperation to, um, to see Jesus and to chase him down and to find him, it seems that um, most of them haven't thought about taking any food with them. I kind of imagined it was almost like a stampede. First of all, you get the point where everyone, no one knows where Jesus has gone, and then, and then a rumour surfaces. You know, somebody thinks they've seen him going in a certain direction, and it spreads, and then all of a sudden everyone's dashing down there to try and get to, to where Jesus is supposed to be, and they're not thinking about how long they're going to be out or what they might need for the day, and all these people trying to get a piece of the action and maybe to get a front row seat at the, uh, at the next exciting sermon and the display of miracles. They all, they all just rush off um, and they end up in this remote place, thousands of people. Were they going to starve? No, we can go more than 24 hours without food, can't we? I know we quite often think that we can't, <laughs> but, but we can go more than 24 hours. They weren't going to starve, but nevertheless, Jesus still had compassion on them, it says in one of the other Gospels. He cared about, not their starvation, he cared about their discomfort. And I think that's a nice little um, takeaway that we can have from this, if you pardon the pun about food, not takeaway, you know what I mean. It's a nice little takeaway that we don't need to be starving or at breaking points for Jesus to notice what we're going through. He cares about the little things too. And he cares about our comfort and well-being. So there's nothing too small for us to bring to the Lord. And I think there's a practical point here as well, because if there is any value in teaching people, either in a church context or in a Bible study or in a one-to-one um, engagement, if there's any value in teaching people, as Jesus was doing, we should try to ensure that they're comfortable and not distracted by, by negative, negative things. Otherwise, what they might remember is not the message that has been shared, but um, the negative things that accompanied it. The speaker went way beyond his time. I remember somebody telling me that they'd spoken at a conference and the thing that had bothered the um, one sister who came up to him at the end um, was nothing about what he said, and it seems that the only thing that she remembered of what he'd said and done was that he hadn't worn a tie. This was in the days of wearing a tie was very important at the conference. So we should, there's practical reasons why we should think about people's um, physical needs and anything else that might be a distraction to the, um, to the message. Anyway, back to the main problem. Supply and demand. Huge demand, and as Philip and Andrew both pointed out, hopelessly inadequate resources. And maybe we sometimes um, feel like that, that we just don't have enough resource. It seems that Philip's approach was to work it all out, to analyse 
the problem first before he came to the Lord. I know the way the text reads is that the Lord just asked him a question, but he seemed to have a very quick answer. So I think even before the Lord asked him the question, Philip has been thinking about this. Look at all of these people. And it seems that Philip kind of, in a way, got out his calculator, metaphorically speaking, and he estimated the size of the crowd, and he considered the local market and the cost of bread, and he thought about how much each person might need to eat as a minimum, and um, the bites, as it says in verse 7, and, uh, and maybe he even had a quick thought about how much money they had in the bag, but knowing it was nowhere near enough to, to, um, to provide for all of these people. <coughs> so he did all of his working out, and then when the Lord Jesus asked him the question, his answer was basically... It's impossible. You know, we, we just can't do it. Andrew's approach was different. But, you know, in the end, it wasn't really any better. Um, he didn't analyse the problem in the same way, and I think perhaps he can be commended because he did at least do something. He went out into the crowd to see what might be available to share. Um, but when he found there was almost nothing, just a few bread rolls and fish, uh, and I, it, it seems that any optimism that he might have had in doing that just turned into pessimism. Um, he just looked at what was there and it was inadequate and decided that the problem was just too big. And I'm just going to slip into Mark one more time only to show that it wasn't just Philip and Andrew who um, lacked faith and an appreciation of what Jesus could do. Because Mark tells us that the other disciples then chipped in with their own solution, um, so to speak, their own faithless solution, uh, and they said, send the people away. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. That was their, their solution. Now maybe we've all taken one of these approaches before. Maybe we've overanalyzed a problem like um, Philip did without trusting the Lord. Or maybe we've tried to do things in our own way and we've got disappointed results and then we've given up as a result of that. Um, or maybe just like the other disciples, we've just tried to push the problem away and, uh, and um, leave it for somebody else to deal with. Maybe we've all taken one of those approaches that the disciples um, did that day. But the thing is, the real problem here was not the massive demand. It was the disciples massively underestimating the abundant supply, the resources available to them through the Lord Jesus, who, by the way, as it said in verse 6, already knew what he was going to do. Philip calculated, as I've said, and he worked out that they would need, you know, you know they'd need 200 denarii um, or more to do anything. Um, so he calculated, Andrew did something, but then he still concluded that they didn't have enough. You know, if David, when he faced Goliath, had taken the Philip approach, calculating the height and weight of Goliath and what that would mean if they got into hand-to-hand -hand combat, um, or thought about the length of the, um, the spear of, um, of Goliath and what that, would, what that would mean for a little guy like him trying to come up um, and, 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 and fight him. Um, or, or if he'd taken the Andrew approach and uh, looked at the few stones he collected and concluded that he just didn't have enough weapons to take on the big giant, 
he never would have done anything. He never would have fought Goliath. Or if he'd done the, the approach that the other disciples had wanted to and run back to the Israelite army and um, just push the problem away, leave it to somebody else to, to fight Goliath, they never would have won the victory that day. And I'm only making the comparisons with David because David, unlike the disciples, as we see in 1 Samuel 17, certainly didn't underestimate the resources and the supremacy of his God. It says in 1 Samuel 17, David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands. David knew his God. I said before that some say that the feeding of the 5,000 miracle um, never happened. Now obviously a lot of people who don't believe in God um, all would say that was um, the case. But I'm, I'm talking about people who are inclined to believe that there is something of value in the Bible and that it is God inspired in at least some way, but they doubt the miraculous and the supernatural. And one explanation that's given sometimes by such people is that the miracle that day was the moving of people's hearts. When people saw that the little boy was willing to share his lunch, so did everybody else, and therefore everybody had enough. What a miracle. But that simply ignores the plain reading of the text in all four Gospels. And, as I hinted earlier, it demonstrates a view of Jesus that is far from the truth. A limited Jesus. It shows us Jesus is a good man, Jesus is a teacher, Jesus is a prophet, but not the Jesus of Hebrews 1 and 3. The Son of God who is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. The one who sustains all things by the power of his words. Like I said, I think um, this actually was one of the greatest of the Lord's miracles. Just think about the scale for a moment. Um, Jesus starts to break up um, the rolls and the fish, a bit like I did this morning in the remembrance. Um, and he distributes to the disciples, you know, like I gave the plate to, plate to David, and, uh, and they hurry off and then they come back and he, and he gives them some more. And he's just doing his breaking these loaves up more and more, more and more, more and more. Can you imagine how much food is needed to feed 5,000 people? And as we understand from the, the, the text, and I don't understand why it's a, a cultural thing that it says, it seems to number only the men and it says, oh, women and children also. There could have been 10,000 people there that day. But even if it was only 5,000, how much food is needed to feed that many people? And not just to give them a bite, as um, Philip wanted um, to give them, but so much food that they couldn't eat anymore. You know, if all Jesus had done was to fill the 12 baskets that were left at the end with food, that would have been an amazing miracle. But Jesus filled the bellies of thousands of people from virtually nothing. This was Jesus, our creator, 
at work. The one who, as we sing in one of our praise songs, flung stars into space. Look at verse 11. Two little words there which uh, show the confidence and the anticipation of the Lord Jesus about what he was, he was going to do. It says, before he had done anything, and he still only had a few loaves and fish, it says, he gave thanks. He gave thanks. I wish we, I wish I, had the same confidence when um, we ask God for things. Uh, in prayer, but I, I think we do have a real difficulty when we pray because we often don't know what to pray for and we don't know what to expect in answer to those prayers often and that may perhaps limit our confidence about what the outcomes might be and therefore the whole usefulness of prayer maybe. But just because we don't know exactly what God will do in response to our prayers that shouldn't dilute our confidence in God's ability to do whatever he wills. As it says in Ephesians 3 and 20, he is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his great power that is at work within us. So we can have confidence when we come to God in prayer, not knowing precisely what or um, when our um, prayers will be answered, but we know that he is able to do anything um, that he wills. And we also know we can have confidence in the knowledge um, that he only ever wants the best for us. But I think that we can have another kind of confidence as a result of what we learn in this passage. Um, and I think we see it in the barley loaves that Jesus used for the miracle. Um, I didn't realise this um, until I looked into it. I kind of just thought barley loaves, that was just, that's just what they made bread out of in those days. But they didn't only make bread. Um, they, they had different kinds of bread. And barley loaves were the bread of the poor. It was the poorest quality um, of bread. And when Jesus saw what Andrew had brought, um, and knowing he was going to do this great miracle, um, he didn't send Andrew out to get something a little bit better for his raw materials. You know, if you're going to do a great miracle, you might as well start off with some really nice bread and multiply that. But no, he, he, he used the smallest and most menial thing because it was all that the little boy had. And not only did he turn a very small thing into a massive thing, I imagine, and it doesn't say this in the scripture, but I think it's a reasonable assumption that just like the water he turned into wine at the marriage in the wedding in, um, in, in Cana, I suspect that the bread that he distributed would have been the very best. No hint of its humble origin. I'm sure it would have tasted like the, uh, the best bread that anyone had ever tasted. Michelin star bread, I imagine, was uh, produced that day. What can we learn from this? I think what we can learn is that if we do our best and give what we can in serving the Lord, he'll use it and bless it no matter how small or how ordinary a thing it might be. 
And so we shouldn't hold back, should we? We all know that people often do hold back and they, they, they don't get involved and they don't volunteer to help. Not because they're happy leaving it to everybody else to do, um, to do everything, but simply because they lack confidence that they're able to do a good job, that they're able to do the job well, or at least that they're able to do the job as well as the next person, if there is a next person, and there usually isn't. But people use this lack of confidence as their excuse not to do things. And we all know this because I'm sure we've all done it at different times in our lives. Like Moses when um, he tried to get out of the job that God had given him to do, to go and speak to Pharaoh, um, we say to the Lord, um, and we might say to each other, um, well, I'm not good enough, I can't do that. But in reply, God says to us, just do what you can and I'll do the rest if you trust me. And I think this applies not only to roles and responsibilities in church service, but in all other areas of our lives too. Uh, we might feel weak and inadequate in all sorts of things. Um, challenges um, in our employment maybe, um, people who become parents for the first time, you know, here we are, I'm not, obviously not had that experience, but new parents just like, are just like so overwhelmed, you know, those of you can remember what it was like, you know, there's no one tells you what to do and you've got this awesome responsibility, how do you do that, you know, how do you have the confidence that you can do that, or coping with sickness, or coping with bereavement, or responding to other problems in the lives of families and friends, or, or knowing what to do in the face of a worldwide pandemic, all sorts of things in life where we might feel hopelessly outgunned, uh, hopelessly inadequate and weak for the, the challenges ahead. But I think in all of these things we can be confident that the Lord will help us through. And we can give thanks in anticipation of that. I said before that some people have doubts about the miracles that Jesus did, even among those who have an interest in the Christian faith, even among those who are believers, I think. And that might not be, um, that might not prevent them from having sufficient faith to be saved, but if we lack an appreciation of the power and the supremacy of the Lord Jesus, that he really can do absolutely anything, then we'll not have the confidence that he can answer our prayers. And we'll not be able to trust him fully to help us through the difficulties of life. And we'll be reluctant to offer ourselves in all the areas of service that we, we could be involved in. And when the world seems to be falling apart, like perhaps you feel it is at the moment, then you won't have the peace that comes from knowing that our times really are in God's hands as we sung in our opening hymn. So, um, hopefully, as we continue our journey through John, we're going to see more and more of the evidence that John wants us to see to help us to believe. And not just to have a saving faith, but a faith that is fully trusting in all that, in all that the Lord is. The supremacy of the eternal Son of God, the one who has unlimited power and resources. 
And with that in mind, I'd like to finish by reading one of the Psalms attributed to the man who had the confidence to stand up to Goliath. Whatever crisis we might face in this life, we can trust in the Lord to lead us through. And Psalm 23 is just a, a lovely psalm that just reminds us um, of the provision and the love and the care of the one that we follow. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his namesake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. <laughs>